0: But as we move into our teaching time this morning, I'm going to ask you to make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Crazy enough, we are about the halfway point of, uh, of this series going through the books of First and 2 Timothy. And if you recall, at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we were there a couple weeks ago, uh, in what serves as really one of the central parts of his entire letter... The Apostle Paul lays down a threefold definition of the church. And he says the church is the household of God, church of the living God, and pillar and buttress of the truth. Now of the three, household of God is perhaps the least impressive, the least lofty. You you think of like the church of the living God. This is the place where the presence of the God of heaven and earth, the one true God dwells, the the place where God is powerfully working. Pillar and buttress of the truth, you think, this is the entity, the human entity, that protects and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's the household of God. God's family, with all its dysfunctions, diseases, depressions, and defeats, like we acknowledge. The things we need healing from, like we acknowledge today in our, in our liturgy. So yeah, it's, it's perhaps less lofty, it's more gritty. But it's among and within this household of God, that the grandiose and the marvelous are actually fleshed out in real life and with real people. So our understanding of the church has to be framed not just theologically, not just doctrinally, important as those things are, but relationally. Some of us minimize doctrine and theology, and that's a huge error. Others of us minimize relationships and how central they are to the biblical vision of the church. And that's also a huge error. Because in reality, you can't have one of these things without the other. You can try, and people do. And as Americans, and especially American Protestants, we are especially susceptible to that. Our default lenses are the lenses of individualism. It's just how we naturally perceive life. But in the ancient Near East, in the first century Mediterranean world, these cultural contexts in which this in which scripture was originally written, it was actually the opposite of that. It wasn't the individual, but it was actually the family that served as the primary relational identity. So learning to love this household of God, learning how to do relationships in this family, is not for us a luxury or an add-on. In fact, If you understand all of that grandiose vision of what Jesus established the church to be, if you can articulate that, if you can champion that better than anyone else can, but you lack love for the real men, women, and children that comprise it. What Paul would say of you in another letter in 1 Corinthians 13 is that you are merely a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You make a lot of noise, but you don't do a lot of good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And he goes on to say, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. So that we might be faithful and fruitful members of his family. God is intent to prune that kind of pride, that kind of pretentiousness out of us. And the way that he does this is by making relationships so central to the definition of the church. And here in 1 Timothy 5, with a lot of practical wisdom grounded in a lot of experience, the Apostle Paul lays out some specifics for how we are to treat one another in the household of of God. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is First Timothy chapter five, and I'll read just into those first two verses of chapter six. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves or bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and of, t- and of the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Christians are called to gospel-shaped relationships, and here... Paul offers some general words about God's family, and then some special instructions for three groups, widows, elders, and bondservants. So let's look at each of those. First, God's family. God's family. These initial verses lay down a guiding principle for our relationships with one another in the church, and it's that we should treat each other the way that we should treat our own family. Encourage older men as fathers, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. So, this isn't exhaustive, but it is a really great summary for how we are to do relationships in the church. And in that sense, it's similar to how Jesus teaches us that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, the rest of Jesus' life and ministry, he fleshes out a lot more specifically about what that means and what that looks like. The summary is not the exhaustive teaching but the summary is memorable and it's helpful. So here Paul gives us something similar for relationships. We should interact the way that a healthy family would. That means specifically that consideration is given to two things, age and gender, age and gender. So in a healthy household, you don't speak to mom and dad the same way that you speak to your siblings. When Paul writes here not to rebuke an older man, He's not prohibiting correction where correction is needed. In fact, throughout this letter, Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to correct the elders who are wrong, and many of them are older than you. He's just told him not to let people look down on him because he's young. But here's the thing. As always, relationships are never just about doing the right thing. They're also about how you do that. Grace and truth. Speaking the truth in love. How you do this matters as much as doing the right thing. Consideration, then, is also given to gender. And this is such a a needed protection from ditches on either side of the road. So in some communities, there is too much intimacy between men and women. There's too much personal sharing in the details of life that should be reserved for natural families and for spouses or same-gender friendships and mentorships. There have been some investigative reports that have come out in recent years about the kinds of interviews that are conducted between leaders, male leaders in the Mormon church and teenage girls, specifically about their sexual activity. One-on-one, closed-door, private meetings, and it's completely inappropriate. No excuse for that, completely inappropriate. It's not treating other people with all purity. But the ditch on the other side of the road is not enough intimacy between men and women. Complete avoidance, even, in some circles. Notice how Paul's words here, don't call Timothy away from women, but toward them. God forbid that fear or the possibility of temptation would keep us distant from one another. In fact, if we're going to be faithful, as we've seen in this series, to the original design of God, where there are good distinctions and differences between men and women, that means that we need each other all the more. We need healthy relationships and friendships between men and women that are characterized by love and by purity. Gospel-shaped relationships can never just be about avoiding the bad. They must always also be about pursuing the good. So what's the right level of intimacy? Use family relationships as your guideline. Treat older men and women as fathers and mothers. Treat younger men and women as brothers and sisters. That, again, won't spell out how to handle every situation but it will help us steer clear of these dual errors of impurity and avoidance. With both age and gender here, notice, there's something better than being completely indiscriminate. In relationships in the church, there's something better than being completely indiscriminate. It sounds nice. It sounds politically correct to say, I treat everyone exactly the same. But what Paul is saying when it comes to age, when it comes to gender, there's actually a better way to relate. Give consideration to age. Give consideration to gender. That's the more general directives that Paul gives to all. And then in light of that, he lays out some specific instructions for three groups. Widows, elders, and bondservants. So the first one of those is widows. Widows are, in Scripture, often included in what's known as the quartet of the vulnerable. Uh, These are groups of people who are particularly at risk in society uh, and who also, we see in Scripture over and over again, are near to the heart of God. So from the earliest days, widows have been, from its earliest days, widows have been recipients of the care and of the financial provision of the church. Back in Acts chapter 6, it was the task of distributing food to widows that became the origins of the role of deacon in the church. Without social safety nets, without welfare, with extremely limited opportunities in this culture for women, uh, widows and women, to provide for themselves, the church took up this role as an extension of being part of a spiritual family. And so, here in verses 3 through 16, Paul takes great care to see two things happen that genuine care would happen for widows who truly are in need, and that good stewardship would happen for the church's limited resources. And these are still the very same two things that we pursue in ministries of mercy, in, in benevolence kinds of ministries in the church today. So I want you to hear this. There's an assumption here throughout this that the church is always meeting needs and an assumption that there will always be needs out there that must be met. In fact, more than can possibly be met. And because that's true, because you can't meet every need, the church and those who lead in that ministry in particular have to be discerning and wise about those needs that they should meet and can meet. So a few specific guidelines related to widows. Uh, Widows' relatives, widows' age, and widows' character is what Paul talks about here. So a widow's relatives, if if a widow has family members, and especially family members who are Christians, the primary responsibility of care belongs to them. Not as an obligation, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity to return some of what this woman has so poured out and given to that family in years gone by, to free up resources for the church. That's another part of the opportunity. Most importantly, because as Paul writes, it pleases God by doing so. Paul then has appropriately harsh words for those who refuse to provide for their relatives. And the argument goes a little bit like this. Even many people who aren't Christians, because they were created in the image of God, they've got a God-given conscience. And they know in that conscience they're supposed to take care of their own, their own family. So it's of utmost hypocrisy for Christians to claim to be part of God's household while neglecting a member of their own. Second thing, since consideration here, is a widow's age. And Paul says they should only be enrolled if they are 60 or older. Life expectancy being what it was in the first century, estimates are that only 6 to 8% of the entire population was 60 or over at this point. So I don't think Paul is intending here that the church should avoid helping anyone younger than this. I think what he's saying is that the church should not enter into a more formal, long-term kind of care with a widow while she is still younger. Why not? Because there are some specific considerations for younger widows because of both their good and right desire for companionship, and because of the vulnerability of that station in life, particularly in the first century, there's going to be a strong pull for a younger widow to remarry. And that's perfectly good. That's a perfectly desired. desire. It's even what Paul says is preferential, because it's one of the ways that God provides means for people who are vulnerable like that. But that pull can be so strong. It is so strong that some will be tempted to marry someone who is not a Christian and abandon the gospel in the process. And that seems to be happening already there in Ephesus. Paul mentions here that some have abandoned their former faith, that some have strayed after Satan. There's also concern that younger widows will take advantage of that situation. Having their needs met by the church, they might misuse the time. They might become idle and gossips and busybodies. Now that's a huge generalization. It's not like only younger women, younger people do that. Older people do this too. But similar to how Paul writes earlier that elders should not be recent converts. Before the church enters into a long term relationship of support and care for a widow, you want to know her some. You want to observe her life and see her life play out some. And that relates to this third consideration, which is a widow's character. Look for demonstrated godliness in character. Faithful in marriage, a reputation for good works, one who brings up children, whether that's her own or orphans or perhaps both. The word can include all of that here. Showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints. In other words, a truly humble servant who's willing to do even the lowliest of tasks. Caring for the afflicted, all of which is to say, this woman is the farthest thing from idol. She's using her time, she's using her life well and blessing other people. And herein lies the aspect of this passage that's often overlooked. There's a lot here, as you're hearing, about the role of the church in the life of a widow. But there's also a lot here about the role of a widow in the life of the church. And in the church at Ephesus, widows are both receiving and giving. And often, assuming that they have the ability to do so, it's the same widows who are, that receive as the ones who serve. When Paul here talks about enrolling, there's some debate as to whether he's prescribing an official order of widows, like another title, another even office, perhaps, in the church. And at different times in the history of the church, there has been exactly that. The church father, Tertullian, describes an order of widows who devoted themselves to prayer, nursing the sick, Caring for orphans, visiting Christians in prison, sharing the gospel, and teaching female converts in preparation for their baptism. Whether or not it's an official order, what I would implore you not to miss from 1 Timothy 5 this morning is this. In the church, widows don't just need the rest of us, the rest of us need widows. Because of the experiential wisdom of their lives, because of the maturity of their character, because of their example of godliness. The church father, John Chrysostom, recalled the reputation of the church outside its walls in his day. Heavens, he wrote, what women there are among the Christians. What women there are among the Christians. What a tragedy to only see widows as those in need of our support. Learn to see yourselves in need of theirs. And I'm sure this will embarrass her some, but let me just use this as a moment to to honor Timmy Herney, in our midst. If you don't know Timmy, uh, you are missing out in knowing her. Uh, Her creative abilities are actually featured on our gallery wall this month, Uh, and she shares actually some of her story in a little write-up that's on that wall. If you haven't had a chance to look at her work and read that write-up, let me highly encourage you to do that. Um, Timmy is actually a widow twice. She, over the course of her life, has, has seen two husbands precede her in death. Unlike elders and deacons, no one aspires to be a widow. No one aspires to that. If you aspire to that, we should talk about your marriage. (laughs) But Timmy, Timmy didn't sign up for that. Especially twice, who signs up for that? But talk about God's grace through pain and suffering and sorrow in her life. Timmy is a force for the kingdom of God. And I dare you to go eat lunch with her at Messiah Village someday and see how many times you get interrupted by people during the course of that lunch who know her and are blessed by her presence in their their life. And Timmy, you are a blessing. Your presence here is a blessing in our life too. We benefit so much more from you than you ever would from us. What women there are among the Christians. What women there are among the Christians. The next group that Paul talks about here, are elders. Elders. And having spelled out the qualifications earlier, how then should the church relate to those who serve in that role? And Paul offers words here about three things, appreciation, accusation, and assessment. So appreciation, elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. And by that, Paul means, as John Stott so aptly puts it, both respect and remuneration. Both honor and honorarium. So I'm grateful, truly, for kind words, I'm grateful for the notes of encouragement that I receive occasionally. I'm also grateful for the salary that I receive from this church. Shockingly, Wells Fargo doesn't take your respect as a form of my mortgage payment. <laughs> they maybe should after the year that they've had, but they don't. Elders, Paul writes earlier, must not love money or be motivated by it, but Paul is equally concerned that they be adequately compensated. And there's a reference here to an Old Testament law about not muzzling an ox. And the argument is this, if God cares enough to command his people not to muzzle an ox so that while it is laboring, it can eat some of the fruit of its labors, how much more does God care that gospel laborers benefit from some of that labor? And Jesus himself, as Paul quotes here, taught that his apostles, he taught his apostles that a laborer deserves his wages. Paul then talks about accusation, two equally important pieces. Elders must be protected against false accusation and held accountable when there are real grounds for it. What a needed and timeless word that is in our day. We are in the midst, and I'm sure you're aware of it as well as I am, we're in the midst of a cultural moment where accusations abound, where people, because of social media and the news cycle and all that, people are often presumed guilty before they're ever even heard. And at the same time, we're in a cultural moment where so many church leaders have proven themselves untrustworthy. They've been discovered sexually abusing people or abusing their positions of power or being sinfully negligent not to deal with that stuff. God have mercy. So how are we to navigate this? Just a few thoughts. As part of the family of God, you should insist on a plurality of elders, more than one and one in which the leadership culture among those elders is that the elders both know and love one another deeply and uphold the integrity of the gospel at all costs. Those are not mutually exclusive things, even when it seems like they are culturally. In fact, those are one and the same. But in some places, in the name of upholding the gospel, leaders will feel like they are always on trial. And that will force them underground. That actually creates an atmosphere where leaders don't feel like they can be known. And then what happens in the midst of that isolation is that the sin patterns in their life become amplified and magnified. There are other places that have such a cult of personality around the main leaders that they become too big to fail. And so excuses start to get made about the patterns that exist in their lives and have existed in their lives. And any accusation gets shut down rather than actually being dealt with. A lot of partiality and favoritism gets shown to those who sit in those roles. So you, as a part of the household of God, if and when you find yourself concerned, you need to be able to bring that concern or even that accusation, if there's an accusation, confident that you will be taken seriously and listened to. You also need to bring it with humility and with hope. Again, we relate to one another the way that we're supposed to relate to each other in a family. In a family, no one gets any joy from seeing someone else in that family fall seeing their reputation take a dive. If we rejoice in this stuff as it plays out in the news, shame on us. We don't rejoice when a part of our family falls. So we protect against unsubstantiated accusation and even when they're substantiated, we ch- we do it well as well as we possibly can. And then when it is substantiated, we love our family enough never to sweep it under the rug. Reflecting on this this week makes me so immensely grateful for the elders that we have in our networks, the x 29 network, the Liberty Network, and specifically in this church. And I want you to hear from me this morning the caliber of the other elders of this church. Will Kenny, John Robinson are men of utmost integrity. If you don't know them, get to know them. They are men of utmost integrity. And our commitment to you, our commitment to each other, is that we will know and love and respect one another deeply but we will never be impressed by each other. And we will never cover for one another because the gospel is too important for that. Appreciation, accusation, and assessment. The best way to avoid scandal, to avoid the havoc and the chaos of things like accusation, is to be diligent and appropriately cautious on the front end. Again, no partiality, no favoritism. Alexander Strock writes in his book, God's standards alone not group popularity, govern God's house. And in order to ensure that that's the case, what Paul says here is we have to be patient. You have to be patient. Don't be hasty in laying hands on people. Don't be hasty in appointing people to these roles. Why not? Because there's always a gravitational pull to be hasty. There's always a need for another good elder yesterday. I know that more than probably most. There's always a need for another good elder yesterday. However, as he writes here at the end of chapter 5, while some things are immediately evident, other things take time to appear. And that's true for both our sin patterns and our good works. First impressions are only that. You can either too quickly then pull someone in or you can too quickly write someone off. And so you have to take the necessary time to observe what a potential elder is actually like in real life. The wisdom of Paul's words here is actually illustrated by the experience of two of my friends who have been involved in church planting. In recent years, they ordained their first elders only to immediately have those elders turn around with either a list of demands or insisting that that pastor now resign. Every church needs another good elder. No church needs those elders. And all of this is stressful. It's weighty. Are you feeling that a little bit in Paul's words? And so in the midst of this, Paul is like, hey, Timothy, keep a few bottles of wine handy. (laughs) It's probably not actually the way he's intending that. He he says, keep yourself pure, and it seems that that's a qualification. He talks about this, this aside about drinking wine as a qualification for that. Timothy, it seems like, is inclined to be somewhat of an ascetic Right? He has self-imposed rules. He doesn't want to drink alcohol. But Paul is saying, hey, because of your stomach, because of your ailments, no doubt which are exacerbated by the stress, drink some wine. That doesn't make you impure. That will do your body good, actually, and maybe, even as the psalmist says, it will gladden your heart. The final group requiring specific instructions is bond servants. And Paul speaks so briefly about this here that he probably is assuming that his audience there in Ephesus is familiar with his fuller treatment of this in Ephesians chapter 6. And so likewise, we're only just touching on this topic today. But I appreciate how a scholar named N.T. Wright frames all this. He says, Because the only thing that you and I have to say about slavery is that it's wrong, we cannot believe that the early Christians didn't have the same reaction. But N.T. Wright goes on to write, The answer, of course, is that many of them did. Many of them did. There are important differences between a bond servant in this cultural context and the institution of slavery in the West in recent centuries. So this, what Paul writes here, in no way rationalizes, prescribes slavery. In fact, what Paul writes about slavery contains within it all of the ingredients that ultimately led to abolition. So for example, in Ephesians 6, he writes, uh, that he attributes equal status and equal value and worth to both slaves and their masters, which would have been unthinkable and revolutionary in that particular time. Paul here is merely describing what bond servants should do in their present circumstances. In the first case, even if their masters are not Christians, they should regard them worthy of honor. They should labor well, even if, even when there's injustice and there's oppression. Why? Because even when you're powerless to change your circumstances, there's an opportunity to display Jesus within them. Even when you're powerless to change your circumstances, there's an opportunity to display Jesus within them. By their labors in this vulnerable, in this oppressed position, bondservants of unbelieving masters become missionaries of the gospel in one of the most powerful ways I can imagine. And then, if their master is a believer... That doesn't mean that they should take advantage of the fact that he is a brother in Christ. In fact, because a brother is benefiting from your work, you're to serve all the better. So again, Paul's focus here, he's not giving attention to the broader systemic issues and the social changes that would come later. But what he says, even without attention there, the fact that a relationship between a master and a bondservant, did you hear this word, might be characterized as beloved. Think about that might be characterized as beloved. That's incredible. That's only possible by the transforming work of God. And it means, at the end of the day, that their shared identity as brothers, fellow members of the same family of God, that is their deeper, more important identity. One that will remain long after all the oppressions and injustices and the walls of division and hostility are broken down in the name of their shared Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So, to bring it all together, then, in addition to the opportunity that our relationships afford to display the gospel, gospel shaped relationships are driven by honor. Did you hear the refrain in this scripture? Honor widows. Elders are worthy of double honor. Even masters of bondservants are worthy of all honor. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 will write, Love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor. It's one of the, two of the 55 one another's of the New Testament. And notice how that one verse holds together brotherly affection and honor. In the family of God, all relationships are to be characterized by honor. Just as the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Show that same familial honor in the family of God. Older men and older women as fathers and mothers. Younger men and younger women as brothers and sisters. Honor widows, not only by providing for them, but by receiving from them. Honor good elders with respect and with remuneration. Even for bondservants, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Why? Why? Because the church is the household of God. The ones for whom Jesus Christ set aside his own honor, And took on flesh and hung on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended back to that place of all honor so that we might become, you and I might become, not just part of an institution, not just part of a movement, but a part of his own family. So, men and women and children who are my family in Christ, understand the church not just doctrinally and theologically, but relationally. And in response to the gospel, May our relationships be characterized by honor. Acknowledge and appreciate each other. Do the hard work of knowing people so that you can affirm what God is doing in their life right now. Recognize the honor that has been imparted to each of the men and the women and the children in this room that's been imparted to them by God. Because just like you, in your own heart and in your own mind, Sin is constantly assaulting the people in this room with shame and with lies about their lack of it. And so by our words and by our lives, may the truth, may the honor always speak more loudly. Amen. Let me pray. Lord God, you and the person of Jesus set aside the honor that you had before the world began and you entered in to this broken world among we the broken people also that you might save us by your death by your resurrection so that ascending to the hand the right hand of the father you might call your people into your family in relationships characterized by honor help us to honor one another help us to value relationships in your family as highly as you do. And I pray that as we come to this table, you would meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would sustain us in your grace. That you would give us strength to now live out this message that we have heard today. We pray this in your name. Amen.